Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. Week 40 of the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. Man, another crazy week. Today's show is brought to you by WarbyParker.com. Get a five-day free in-home try-on at www.WarbyParkerTrial.com slash Han. That's H-A-H-N. Five pairs, five days, 100% free. By the way, if you tried that last week, I messed up the URL. So this week I got it right. It's www.warbyparkertrial.com slash Han. So the impeachment articles will be going to the Senate soon. The president is completely unhinged and out of line in everything he does. And Iowa is getting close. Let's start the show. We are now the defenders of the stronghold of democracy and of equal opportunity. You and I, as citizens, have the obligation to shape the debates of our time, not only with the votes we cast, but with the voices we lift. The people are looking for honest answers, not easy answers. The very word secrecy is repugnant. Clear leadership. And we are, as a people, not false claims and evasiveness and politics as usual. Opposed to secret society. But ours was a nation of the battle, not the bullet. And a secret procedure. As a people, we cannot afford to let any group of citizens or any individual citizens live or labor under conditions which are injurious to the Commonwealth. Black, white, Latino, Asian, Native American, young, old, gay, straight, men, women, folks with disabilities, all pledging allegiance under the same proud flag to this big, bold country that we love. That's what I see. That's the America I know. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. There is nothing wrong with America that cannot be cured by what is right with America. You know, one of the things that really bothered me during the George W. Bush-led Gulf War was that anybody who opposed it was accused of being unpatriotic. Oh, you don't love America if you don't love this war, is what they said. You know, they, they wanted to get everybody to rally around the flag and, you know, don't ask any questions about we- weapons of mass destruction and why we're doing it. No, no. Just take the president's word for it. Just take Colin Powell's word for it. You know, Dick Cheney, whatever. Take their word for it. We've got your back, America. Uh, You don't have to ask any questions or anything. Well, you know what? It's funny because what this president 
and his lackeys are doing. And all of them, Doug Collins, the vice president, his daughter-in-law, even Nikki Haley, who I've said a lot of nice things about uh, over the years, they're right there with them. They're basically saying Democrats love terrorists because they're questioning the president's decision to take out Soleimani. I look, I get it. He was a bad guy, horrible human being, did a lot of bad things. And I'm not crying over his death, America, but I am concerned that we have a president that almost started a war with a country we do not have a declared war with. And the evidence that he put forward has been described by people in his own party, Mike Lee, senator from Utah, as thin at best. Mike Lee, in fact, called it the worst briefing he'd ever received on a military action. And let's also add this to it. The reason keeps changing. When Mike Lee and the other 100 members of the U.S. Senate and 435 members of the House of Representatives were briefed on this, there was no mention of our embassies being in danger. Then the president goes to a rally and says, this guy was going to blow up our embassies. Then he says, oh, there were four embassies. Then you have the Secretary of Defense on the Sunday shows over the past weekend saying, I wasn't aware of any specific threat to a U.S. embassy, but I think the president believed it. So I believe the president. What is that? The secretary of defense who gets the same daily briefing that the president of the United States does should have been aware of any threat against our embassy. The president made that up. Okay, look, you could both like our constitution and hate terrorists at the same time. I I don't like terrorists. I'm a New Yorker who worked in the U.S. Senate During 9-11, if you go back a couple of months and listen to my show on 9-11, I talk about it. I talk about it in great detail. I don't like terrorists. And I, for one, uh, you know, understand that there are some people in this world that this government uh, cannot deal with through diplomatic means. But I also love our Constitution. And and while I know there are a lot of bad people in this world, like Kim Jong-un, Vladimir Putin, who we're not trying to take out. I mean, uh, Vladimir Putin killed somebody in Great Britain. Just killed him because he could. Do you see the Brits trying to take Vladimir Putin out or a general in his army? That would start World War III. I get it. I think this guy, Soleimani, was was probably stoking the flames that led to the protest that, uh, you know, uh, right outside of our Baghdad embassy that broke down, you know, that people broke through the wall and, and a contractor was killed somewhere else in Iraq. I get it. That was all Soleimani. You could put that on him if you want. But the president using force against a Iranian national, he is not a stateless terrorist. He is a national. He is a member of the Iranian army. He was, the, you know, by all accounts, the second most powerful person in Iran. He was not a stateless actor. The president had to show imminence to use force in that situation. That if he does not do this, that will happen, right? This threat will happen if the president doesn't act immediately president hasn't shown that and clearly if there was an imminent threat the president you know we learned uh earlier in the week that the president ordered or not ordered but agreed that Soleimani should be targeted about six months ago 
But he wanted to give the order to actually have the attack. And when did the order come? When the president needed to distract us from two things, his impeachment and the fact that our Baghdad embassy got overrun. I was calling it Baghdad Ghazi last week. Didn't get picked up. Nobody really was going for that. I called it. I, I called it that. I tried. Wasn't really working out. So the president of the United States, for political purposes, decides to take military action against a state actor without Congress intervention, without notifying the gang of eight. And now that there are people, including people within his own party, prominent people in his own party, senators saying, "Ah, wait a minute, Mr. President, he is calling Democrats lovers of terrorists. In fact, earlier in the week, he tweeted out a picture of my former boss, Chuck Schumer, and Nancy Pelosi dressed as Muslims. And when his press secretary was asked about it, she said the president wants to show that Democrats love terrorists. Now, one, not all Muslims are terrorists because, you know, you're a racist, Mr. President. You're a racist, press secretary. I I can't remember your name because I've never seen you in person. You don't give a briefing because you don't want to answer questions to the people. Not all Americans... Not all Muslims are terrorists. And Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and Mike Lee and Rand Paul and Matt Gates, standing up for the Constitution of the United States of America does not make them lovers of terrorists. And I don't think we need to go down this road yet again in this country where people who are opposing a war and opposing the ever-expansion of executive power to wage war are labeled unpatriotic or worse, lovers of terrorists, which, by the way, is just one step removed from the president calling Democrats terrorists. And by the way, I'm also getting tired of people with real jobs not calling it the Democratic Party, but calling it the Democrat Party. That's a lot of nonsense. I can't take you seriously if you can't use proper grammar when addressing a major political party, if everything's got to be a right-wing radio nonsense attack, even from people within our government, we are lost as a nation. Lost as a nation. I mean, you're going to call it the Democrat Party? No, it's the Democratic Party. There are one person is a Democrat. Multiple people are Democrats. The party is the Democratic Party. It's not the Democrat Party. If you ever see somebody saying that, you know that that person is auditioning to be like Sean Hannity's weatherman or something like that. And you should not take them seriously in their job. When I've got people within our government, including the Secretary of State, the Secretary of State fourth in line to the presidency, calling it the Democrat Party. I mean, it's it's like something, I don't know if Frank Luntz made this up 10 years ago or 20 years, but it, it, you know, it used to be something that, you know, when I would debate like a right-wing radio host, they would call it the Democrat Party. And I would say, you know, smugly, you know, I know you guys don't like science, but I didn't know you had a problem with grammar too. Republicans have a war on grammar now. 
Like, I, I get it. You know, science doesn't always jive with your worldview, even though science shouldn't be something that we debate politically. But grammar? I can't take them seriously. Everything's a slight. Everything's a fight. Everything's about these right-wing memes. So here we are. We're in this situation now, and it's going to get worse between now and November. They are going to start saying that everyone that doesn't support this president is a supporter of terrorism, (laughs) that I'm not patriotic, that I, I don't love America. I mean, this is nonsense. By the way, this is why we were in Iraq to begin with, the stupid war that this president said he didn't want to see happen again because nobody would stand up to the president of the United States because they were afraid of being called unpatriotic. No, I want to see Congress take its power back that is given to them in Article 2, excuse me, Article 1 of the United States Constitution. Congress declares war, not the president. Congress chooses which countries are our enemies. This president is is relying on the uh, on the authorization to use for, force against Saddam Hussein for his action against Soleimani. Iran and Iraq were mortal enemies under Saddam Hussein. Mortal enemies, and that's what and that's what he's relying on here. That's insane absolutely insane and congress has every right to call him out the house of representatives passed a bipartisan resolution under the war powers act condemning the president's actions and demanding that he comes back to congress before he takes any other actions against iran the senate will do the same thing i don't know that it's going to matter the man doesn't care about the constitution doesn't care about the rule of law clearly doesn't care about checks and balances And he's being impeached, right? Nancy Pelosi this week uh, will meet with her committee chairman. They will pick uh, uh, impeachment managers to go over to the Senate and the trial should start sometime next week, right? Monday's a holiday. So sometime next week, uh, the impeachment will start. And sometime next week, um, the president will do something else to try to distract us from that. Even though he thinks he's going to be exonerated, completely exonerated, maybe totally exonerated. He'll do something to distract us because when we're talking about his crimes, it's bad for him. Absolutely bad for him. And when you wind up with a majority, or right now, two-thirds of Americans, including 40%, almost 40% of Republicans, want to see John Bolton testify. John Bolton has signaled that he will testify. So I guess this, you know, holding back the articles thing wasn't a total mistake, right? That Republicans are trying to paint it. Oh, Nancy made a huge mistake. She didn't. Because every senator was called out on it. And now you have people saying, let's see John Bolton testify. And John Bolton, Bolton saying he will testify. And if the Senate doesn't call John Bolton, the House should. They should call him. They should subpoena him. He said he would come. He said he'd come to the Senate. He should come to the House. The question is, are we going to have a real trial or a cover-up in the Senate? Is the Senate going to allow witnesses? Is the Senate going to allow, um, you know, for a thorough examination of the crimes? Or are they going to try to rush this through to help the president? Try to get it done before the State of the Union so he can come out to the State of the Union and go, I've been totally exonerated. 
I don't know, man. I am worried about this country. I am worried about this country. And we're heading into an election. And let's see what happens. Polls in Iowa are fluid. Some polls have Bernie up. Some polls have Biden up. Some polls show that if you take first and second choices, Warren's up. I don't know. I don't know who's going to win this. I am, you know, we are late, late, late. And Iowa breaks late. I do know this. If Biden wins Iowa, he's probably going to win the nomination. If Bernie wins Iowa, the same could be said for him. Unless somebody stops him in New Hampshire, which I don't think will happen. I don't, I don't see him winning South Carolina or Nevada because he doesn't do well with people of color. But I don't know. You win those first two states, it is a lot of momentum for Bernie Sanders. Iowa matters a lot to Biden because even if he loses New Hampshire, and he won't lose badly, he will crush in South Carolina and Nevada, and then we are, he'll be off to the races on Super Tuesday. You know, I talked to Mike Bloomberg's guy last week, and I think he's got a convention strategy. We've talked about this. We'll see where it goes. His numbers are looking good in like Florida and California and some other big states that vote on Super Tuesday and vote in March. Um, but I don't know how, how solid those numbers are after Iowa and New Hampshire start showing momentum for a candidate. That's just the key, right? Momentum is always a key in an election. Who could grab that momentum and take it forward and move forward? And it is a vital year, guys. I mean, you know, this is, look, if you if you sense urgency in my voice, and also if you sense a sore throat, I got a sore throat for the first time in like a year and a half. Um, haven't missed a day of running yet. Don't plan on it. But my runs have been pretty bad. <laughs> uh, but I haven't missed. My streak is still alive at like, I think I'm at like 470, or excuse me, 377 days. I don't know where I'm at. But it is a uh, it is a consequential year, and there's a lot to talk about and a lot going on. I got a great guest today, uh, Basil Smeichel, former executive director of the New York State Democratic Party. He is a professor at Columbia. You see him on MSNBC all the time. Uh, good guy. I've known him for years. Haven't seen him in a while, uh, other than on TV. We haven't, you know, I don't know. Things change, right? <laughs> you know, you don't see people as much as you used to. Um, but Basil will be on, uh, talking about stuff and then I'll come back and I'll talk a little bit more about 2020 and everything else that's going to happen in the weeks ahead. But before I do, I got to remind you, uh, you know, the listeners of this podcast, Warby Parker is offering a free five day home try on to give you the opportunity to check out their glasses. Go to www.warbyparker.com, excuse me, www.warbyparkertrial.com slash Han to try five pairs at home for free. Look, these glasses are fashion forward. They don't cost an arm and a leg. And for every pair you buy, a pair gets donated to somebody in need. You can't beat that, right? I mean, think about how hard it is to get ahead in this world. Now think about how hard it might be if you don't have proper eyewear, if you're, if you're vision impaired and you're struggling to make ends meet and you want to try to get a job or, or move up in a career or maybe go back to school, you know, spending 100 bucks on glasses might not come easy to you. So Warby Parker uh, does that for people. You know, $95, including prescriptions for fashion-forward eye, eyewear, that is something you should really check out. Go to 
www.warbyparkertrial.com slash Han, H-A-H-N, to check out this special offer. I really appreciate it if you do. All right. I'll be right back. Stay where you're at. Hey, America, Christopher Hahn here, the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. What is with the president and the right-wing echo chamber encouraging these astroturf protests against stay-at-home orders around the country? It's ridiculous, and it needs to stop. Check out the Aggressive Progressive Podcast wherever you download podcasts. I'm Royal Oaks. Next time on Too Many Lawyers, COVID continues to reshape the law. Supreme Court arguments will be held by teleconference. The justices won't even know if the lawyers are wearing pants, which is fair given the eternal mystery of what's under those black robes. Los Angeles County is springing 25% of its inmates. The sheriff suggests folks get ready for what might be a spike in crime. Check it all out on the next episode of Too Many Lawyers. Executive Director of the New York State Democratic Party and a lecturer and PhD doctorate himself at Columbia University. Mr. Basil Smichael, you see him. Actually, me, Dr. Basil Smichael, you see him on MSNBC. Uh, you've you've read him. He he knows a lot about politics. How you doing, man? I'm doing quite well, man. How are you doing? Um, Happy New Year, brother. Happy New Year to you, too. Thank you for coming on. I really do appreciate it. It's been a while. Uh, since I've actually talked to you, I've been watching you on MSNBC. I see you on Facebook and Twitter uh, once in a while, but I haven't really ran into you. I, I don't know why. I used to run into you all the time. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's uh, important to keep a low profile these days sometimes. I don't know. Just, uh, to decompress. Yeah, you know, us, what's going on in the world. <laughs> us TV guys need to keep a low profile once in a while. <laughs> so, man, it has been a wild first nine days of the year, huh? I mean, have you ever experienced an opening? nine days of a year like the one we just came through? Certainly not when the words World War Three are trending on social media, right? Yeah, right. So that, was, uh, that was a bit of a, certainly was a bit of a shock. And, you know, I think in some ways it touches on a lot of uh, deeply held concerns that a lot of voters had. Like, you know, if you, I don't know if you, you know, go back here you know, to when this president was elected, there are a lot of folks like, man, you know, this guy got take us into World War Three, or, right. you know, can we really trust this? And, you know, that that's always, even though you kind of get the sense that there are people around him to pull him back from the precipice of doing something substantially drastic. Right. This, this action in Suleimani and killing Suleimani came pretty close <laughs> to right. what a lot of folks were concerned about. Yeah, I mean, it, it was pretty insane, if you ask me. Pretty insane, if you ask me, you know, that the president made this decision, you know, by himself, of course, like everything else he does. And uh, to see the sycophantic Republicans after that briefing yesterday, one after another, come out until Mike Lee came out and tore them apart about it uh, was amazing to me. And I think that's right. And I think what's interesting is if you look back on the president when he uh, does, in some respects, you know, some of the things that he says about foreign policy get him high remark, high marks from his base because he, he kind of challenges foreign nations. Right. He, he challenges NATO. But when it comes to members of the Republican Senate, you know, the military is their thing. Like, they can they can be sycophants and they can sideline next to the president on a ton of other issues. But when you start messing with the military... Foreign they, policy, not just military, but foreign policy in general. Broadly. 
Yeah. Bronze Age general. And in the military, like, they, they start to get their backup. If you notice, if you remember, back when there was that troop withdrawal from Syria, you had a lot of Republican senators saying, wait a minute, we needed to be consulted on this. This is not, this may not be a smart decision. Yeah. So it's one of those few times when you really do see some fissure within the sort of, within the Republican Party. Um, I don't know that that has any ramifications for this election cycle going forward, but it is an interesting milestone or benchmark, I would say, because you really do get a sense of if you have problems with whether or not this Congress or the Senate reacts to things that the president does in a way that you think should be in line with their actual job and mission, this is the one area where you could say, you know, they seem to be, um, they, they, they seem to be trying to hold him accountable. You know, it's, it's interesting that even today, uh, in the, in the house of representatives, they had a vote, uh, on the war power resolution, war powers resolution mm-hmm. to, you know, to invoke five C of the war powers act. And, even Matt Gates, the president's like, you know, frat boy buddy, voted with the Democrats to limit the president's war powers, which is amazing. So when that goes over to the Senate, and I guess, you know, I don't know if this is a binding resolution at all, but when that goes over to the Senate, I expect to see, I we know Mike, we know where Mike Lee is. We know where Rand Paul is. Uh, you know, do you think there are two more senators that might, you know, surprise us here? It's possible, particularly you've got, what, six vulnerable uh, senators, one Democrat or a Republican, um, six really uh, pretty vulnerable senators that might, at least on this issue, side with the Democrats. Right. And there might not be any consequence for them. Right. They would be on impeachment, for example. But on this, I don't know that going back and saying, you know what, I don't know that the president, that we are safer, but certainly we don't want to send any of our troops over there without it, without real hard intelligence about uh, related to sort of what's to come yeah. right ahead. And I think if they were to vote with Democrats, I don't know that there's a, there's a huge downside to them, to that, as, a, as, as I said, uh, as opposed to something like impeachment. Where do you think we go with this? Like, I mean, clearly, look, the president stepped back uh, from the brink of the war that he himself started um, and, or would have started this is a guy who campaigned on being against stupid wars. It was like one of the few things I fully agreed with him on. I'm against stupid mm-hmm. wars too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but clearly he uh, almost started one of the most stupid wars ever. You know, the stupidest war. I don't know if you're, you're, you're the, you're the PhD. I, I only have a JD. So, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's a pad. I mean, where do you think this goes? I mean, you know, obviously the Iranians didn't want war. Uh, they told us the bombs were coming. Uh, and then they, you know, they, they launched the bombs. Everybody was safe. And the president then stepped back from the brink. But, you know, there are a lot of these satellite groups that Suleimani was in charge of, Hamas and some of the other, uh, you know, terrorist organizations that he was, you know, basically funding. Um, do we hold Iran, Iran accountable for their actions in the weeks and months ahead? Well, it's interesting because one of the questions is how do you do that, especially they pulled out of whatever what was left of their the agreement. They completely pulled out of right, and so maybe this is in part what they wanted all along. They wanted some provocation to be, to essentially abandon every diplomatic tie that they had, uh, every every option or every channel that they had right. uh, to DC and the rest of the and the rest of the coalition, if you will, 
um, to hold them accountable for their actions and for their nuclear capabilities and such. And now they don't seem to be constricted at all, right? right. And I think that, so now, so to me, uh, what, to answer your question, where does this go from here? I think it, it, it really does, um, I think that there's a lot more weight on the president's shoulders to to engage in coalition building around Iran more so than ever before. Even you notice today, he even made this sort of this um, almost an olive branch to NATO and say, you know, maybe we should get NATO more involved, and maybe yeah. we need to task them to be right because that and, and that is a huge departure from how much he derided NATO and said they were worthless and, and inconsequential. Well, I think, you know, so, I, I think he made this decision, you know, to back away when he saw the Dow futures plunging when the Iranian yeah. missiles were in the air. And he said, what am I going to do here? I mean, Dow, pl- Dow would, would have plunged further had he retaliated. Price of oil would have spiked. It would have been a lot of pain in this right. country economically, yeah. even if it wasn't even, you know, not to mention, you know, thousands of our young men and women put in harm's way. I think he saw that and he said, I can't, I can't live with this. I agree with that. And I think, you know, he's, he's accomplished what he needed to do to, for his base. He can go back to them and say, look, I killed a bad guy. The Democrats yep. wouldn't have done that. They wanted to ask for more resident, more evidence. They may not have voted for it if we had let it go through Congress. I took matters into my own hands and I went after a bad guy. That's and, what he's going to say. Yeah. And now he's um, calling Democrats the bad guys, saying, you know, correct. Democrats are the bad guys. It's just, uh, correct. I've never seen uh, a president and a Republican Party, you know, I mean, you haven't either. I mean, this is this is just this is unfathomable to see a president talk this way, you know, in the in the White House. It's amazing. And not even not even really consult the gang of eight, right? Because if you're going to consult with anybody, you got to at least talk to them. You would think you would think. And then and then to retweet a Dinesh D'Souza, you know, tweet about how, you know, he didn't consult my former boss, Chuck Schumer. Uh, because it would have been the same as consulting the Iranians. It's disgusting. All right, here's part two. Sorry for that sharp edit. Here's part two of my interview with former New York State Democratic Party Executive Director and MSNBC regular Basil Smeichel. Back with my friend Basil Smeichel, former Executive Director of the New York State Democratic Party and a lecturer at Columbia University. That's pretty fancy stuff, Basil. I don't, I don't, recall, I don't remember you being at Columbia when I first met you. When we first met, I, I was teaching there and teaching at CUNY at the same time, but I wasn't a doctor at that point. Oh, you weren't? I was not. What, what, what are you teaching? You're teaching politics, clearly, right? So I teach, I actually teach a class in, in public policy and, and communication strategy. Um, I also teach education and public policy, and I've taught classes on policy analysis and, and government and policymaking. I used to, I guest lectured a few times at Columbia, a friend of mine who, a mutual friend of ours, Kelly Glenn, um, there was some uh, professor there that taught this class and would always get, you know, big political names and she would always book Chuck and he would never make it and I would wind up going. (laughs) So it was, uh, it was always a lot of fun. So let's just talk about impeachment for a few minutes. So it's starting to look like um, Pelosi's going to get the, the articles of impeachment over to the Senate soon. And they're expecting to have a trial next week, beginning next week. Um, what do you make of the strategy so far? And uh, you think it's working? Well, in some ways, her waiting uh, in the time that she has has elicited some good information. You know, you have documents come out 
that really addressed what was happening at the time in the White House at OMB at the Pentagon as the decision was made yeah. to pull back Ukrainian aid. You've even with with all of that conversation, you've even got Bolton saying, "You know what? I wouldn't mind testifying." Right. And so, and so in those in that respect, you can make an argument that Nancy Pelosi was somewhat prescient and perhaps even prudent. Right. In in waiting, but let's just be clear: at the end of the day, um, whenever she walks those articles across the across the hallway whether it's 10 days or 10 weeks from now, the, the eventual outcome will be that he's acquitted. Yeah. So on the, on the one hand, have have Democrats created enough of a narrative that sticks to yeah. this voters once this is all said and done? And number two, um, you know, as a former party leader, I understand the need to protect your members. You know, you'd be flipped houses in 20, flipped the house in 2018. Got to protect those members who are yep. in very tenuous positions. Yep. And you've got members of Democratic uh, uh, candidates for president that won't have any role whatsoever except to sit in their chair during the during the the the, the trial, and they won't be able to go out and 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 campaign. And yeah, they, maybe they can have a Twitter game. Who knows? Well, they'll get a lot of they'll get a lot of TV time at six o'clock when the trial recesses, when it's all right? Said and done. Yeah, but so 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 the so the thing is, it probably behooves. Nancy Pelosi to do this sooner rather than later. Right. Everyone wants to get it over quickly so that we can all pivot back to actually having a. I really want there to be a trial going on during the State of the Union. I want I want a completely unhinged Trump. I don't want them to rush this trial so that by February 4th it's over and he gets to stand there at the State of the Union and claim victory. I would have liked for her to hand the impeachment articles to McConnell at the State of the Union. I mean, he's going to be standing right next to her. Yeah, just hand them over. (laughs) You know, you might be right. Here you go. Thanks. Good luck with the trial. Uh, I don't know. No, and I listen. I think he. I think. I think the more and more we talk about uh, the, the trial being rigged and McConnell steadfast and yep. saying we don't want, we're not going to have any testimony so on. You know, all that does is it further creates this sense of unfairness and rigging the system, which you know people on our side, like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and others, have talked long about. Even a lot of Trump supporters that voted for him to drain the swamp are going to be concerned about that, too. So we just have to hit that, hit them with that as well. Yeah. We've got our work cut out for us, no it, matter what. It's a lot of work, and, you know, I'm glad that there were some senators put in the hot seat in their home states, and maybe they'll vote the right way on witnesses and other things to make the trial more fair. But who knows? Who knows? All right. Nobody I only knows. got a few minutes left with you, because, you know, now that I'm on a network clock, I don't have as much time as I used to have. Uh, let's talk quickly about the 2020 uh, election. I mean, there's a big debate next week. Um, you know, it seems to be narrowed down to about five people. Plus you got Bloomberg kind of looming out there. I think he's playing a convention strategy. I had, uh, I had, uh, Steve Benjamin on my show last week and they, he all but admitted that, uh, you know, he's playing for the convention. What, what's your take on what you see going on out there? Well, listen, um, I'm still concerned about the lack of, uh, people of color on that debate stage. Uh, that's still bothersome, especially yep. at the time when you have a president, when you have a president that makes such racist yeah. uh, comments, but that that said, um, look, I still think it's anybody's game at this point. For people like a like Bloomberg and and others, Amy Klobuchar and others, they just have to hope that someone like Joe Biden doesn't run the table in those first couple right. of states. Because if you get to South Carolina and somebody different has won each of the three states prior, 
I think it's anybody's race at that point. I think I think Biden does well in South Carolina, but I do think in the minds of voters, it'll be there'll be enough to kind of reconsider right. the field at that point. You know, I think so that right if now, it's anybody's game in my mind. I think if Biden wins Iowa, it's all over. That's just my opinion. I just I think well, I, we'll see. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, it's weird because New Hampshire, you've got. Bernie and Warren in neighboring states. Actually, yep. Deval Patrick, when you can count Deval yeah, Patrick. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you've got people in neighboring states, and if if they if he wins Iowa, if somebody else wins New Hampshire, what happens with Nevada? I, I think it becomes anybody's game at that point. Very, very interesting to see what happens. Is there anything that would surprise you? What would surprise me is if someone like a Bernie or Elizabeth won the first two states. Or even a f- two of the first three. That would surprise me, right? Um, because I that look, and I'll, and I'll say this: something that I've been saying before. If you think about 2008, Hillary in 08, Hillary in 16, and Biden. Biden is the third iteration of that sort of establishment institutional candidate, and it's been proven that since 2008, with Obama, Bernie. And even and Trump, in his own way, that there is a huge appetite for a disruptive yeah. candidate. Yeah. And so my so I wonder, like I wonder in this age of electability, which I think is a very nebulous term anyway. You know, what does that mean come Iowa and New Hampshire? And have we really reached a point in, on the Democratic side where we are solidly behind a disruptive candidate? Ooh, that's an excellent. That is it. That is the point of a man who's a PhD and teaches at Columbia. <laughs> that was fantastic. I enjoyed that. That was. Are we ready for a disruptor? Move. That's good. I like it. All right. Look, I got ten seconds left with you. Where do you want people to find you? Um, I'm on Twitter at uh, Basil. Uh, what's my Twitter handle? Basil Anthony PhD. And uh, actually, no, Basil Smichael PhD and Instagram Basil Anthony PhD. There you go. All right, that's Basil. I will be right back. Stay where you're at. All right, I'm back. Basil's a good guy. Interesting what he said about the disruptor, right? Uh, I wanted to save that for after. I didn't want to steal his thunder, but uh, got me really thinking when he said that to me the other day. And by the way, I know that the edits are a little rough around those. It's the radio stuff versus the podcast, different rights to different music. Uh, I take the interviews from the radio show because I I want to give the I want to give you the best interviews I could get, and my radio show you know is on in multiple cities around the country, big cities like Orlando and New York and San Francisco. So I get good guests, and I was supposed to have a presidential candidate last week. He uh, obviously their schedules are crazy, so I I don't hold it against that person. I won't say who it was. Uh, hopefully, we'll get that person on soon. But that is the question, right? The Republicans pick the disruptor. Will the Democrats pick a disruptor? And who is that person? Who is the disruptor? I mean, it would be hard to argue that Joe Biden's a disruptor, but he's leading in all the polls, right? He's been leading in the polls for a year. He's still leading in the polls. Iowa gets the first vote in about two and a half weeks, three weeks. And what are they going to pick? Are they going to pick a disruptor or are they going to pick, you know, are they going to pick a, a, a regular type candidate? Republicans picked a disruptor. You know, Basil made the argument. They picked a disruptor in 2016 and he won. Now, is that the road the Democrats want to go down? I, I think that the Democrats right now are looking at this and saying, who can win? 
Can a disruptor win? I don't know. I, I don't know that they can't. Right? So, um, you know, clearly a disruptor can win. Trump was a disruptor. He won. Now, Trump tapped into something different, though. Trump was willing to court people politicians normally don't court and touch on themes like race in a way that brought out the worst in people. And I'm not, look, you're going to call me, you're going to say, you're going to email me, you're going to say, Chris. Not everybody who voted for Trump's a racist. I'm not saying that at all. But every racist that voted, voted for Trump. Right? That doesn't mean all of his supporters are racists. But every racist that came to the polls wasn't voting for Clinton. And they didn't vote for a third party hack this time. They voted for Trump. And that helped. Tell me it didn't. It did. Tell me he doesn't pander to them. He does. I'll give you the example. There are fine people on both sides. I'll give you another example. Tweeting out a picture of Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi in Muslim garb and saying that they love terrorists even though all Muslims are not terrorists. There you go. Promising to ban Muslims from the United States if he was elected and then trying to follow through on that ban, that unconstitutional ban. Yeah. So he was willing to go there. Now, I don't, I don't think that Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren are going to go there. I don't think they're going to disrupt in that way. I mean, I saw Bernie calling the president out about his ties to Saudi Arabia. And I think we should talk, look, Saudi Arabia, Turkey. I think we need to call him out on that. Russia. You know, he's been very favorable to those countries for reasons we don't know and we don't understand and really defies logic. So that is the question as we head into the voting. See, we're getting close, America. And by the way, thank you so much for the support. Another great week for the podcast. We continue to grow. Got a lot of emails. Got a lot of tweets. Please share this with friends. Tell friends. Tweet about it. Share it on Facebook and Twitter and wherever else you do. Tag me at him, at Christopher Hahn on Twitter. I'll retweet it. Uh, you know, I, I really do appreciate all the support I've been getting. I'm, you know, the downloads continue to go up week after week. Uh, we are one of the fastest growing podcasts, uh, out there right now. And, um, you know, iHeartRadio has got us placed pretty well. Pandora, uh, hopefully some of the other, uh, providers will do the same thing and, and put us in a nice spot so that people can find us easily. Uh, but, uh, those that are finding us are definitely sharing it with friends because we have, it seems like every week you know, we go up by 10 or 15%. And uh, that's really good. I mean, we're 40 weeks in now uh, to doing this podcast. I can't believe it's 40 weeks. It feels like just yesterday I started this podcast. People ask me all the time, how long have you been doing a podcast? I go, well, I, I used to just podcast the radio show, right? I used to just put the radio show up and, you know, I wouldn't promote it, but it was there for my listeners. If they missed part of the show, they could listen to it. Then I hooked up uh, with Revolver. I started doing a podcast with original content and I kind of enjoy it because I do my radio show one night a week. And I do the podcast another night and things change, man. Things change. I mean, I, I can't record this late enough before it drops because it just, things change. So going to be another wild week. Pelosi's going to pick those house managers. We're going to find out who's going to represent the president. The Senate might get sworn in before the end of the week, before they go home for the long weekend. 
uh, sworn in to uh, as jurors in the impeachment trial, an oath that they most of them will be neglecting because they will not offer impartial justice, and they've already said they won't offer impartial justice. <laughs> so, uh, good. Take that oath. Shows where you stand. Uh, you know, Lindsey Graham. I'm talking to you, Lindsey Graham. Uh, I don't. I don't know if I uh, talked about this last week, but the great commentator Steve Schmidt, Republican, not a Republican anymore, but. Republican, define Lindsey Graham as a pilot fish. And I can't think of a better way to define Lindsey Graham. He's a pilot fish. He just sucks up to somebody more powerful. And according to Steve Schmidt, in in a very eloquent way he put it, when that person has virtues, Lindsey Graham will have virtues, like John McCain. John McCain was a virtuous guy. Didn't always agree with them, but I never doubted his patriotism, never doubted that he was doing what he thought was right for America. Now, he's a pilot fish attached to Donald Trump. I didn't know pilot fish attached himself. Well, I'm not going to make a fat joke. <laughs> I'm not going to do it. I'm going to stop right there. Uh, but you could figure it out. Um, anyway, I'm at Christopher Hahn on Twitter. ChristopherHahn.com. There's an email link there. Uh, I always forget what the email is, but I do read those emails. Got a couple constructive criticism emails last week. I appreciate that. Uh, people want me to show both sides, and I do try to show both sides. But I am also trying to push the progressive point of view. I'm trying to push the progressive point of view. And I try to do it based in fact. I do not try to make things up. That's one thing I don't do. And if you listen to a lot of the conservative pundits on on the radio and on their podcasts, they are making things up more times than they're not. And I don't. I base my things in fact. And when I get it wrong, because the facts that were presented to me were misleading, I I own up to it and I always will. And I don't think I've done that on this podcast. I may have done it on my radio show once or twice. But when I get a fact that is wrong, I point it out. But I am trying to give you the progressive point of view because I don't think there's enough of that right now. I really don't. I think that, you know, I know that conservatives like to say the media is, uh, you know, got a liberal bias. I think the media goes out of its way to try to show the conservative point of view. Especially when you talk about things like climate, there isn't, you know, two sides to the climate story. You know, there aren't scientists on both sides. Science is not divided. It is almost unanimous in believing that there is global warming happening and that man-made activities are contributing to it. But, you know, the media has to have both sides. They find the one scientist, the one quack out there who uh, who thinks that global warming isn't real or men have nothing to do with it. But, you know. So I'm trying to present that progressive point of view so that my fellow progressives could go out there and talk to conservatives like I do every day and try to show them why we believe what we believe and why it's important for them to think and not just blindly follow the president and his supporters. But now it's time for me to remind you as always to seek the truth yourself question everyone and everything even me america seek the truth i know it's out there and i know you'll find it if you look hard enough for it and i will be back here again next week to tell you the truth as i see it i'm chris hahn thanks for listening to the aggressive progressive podcast
Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen posed that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated.